Well, in verses uh, 14 through 21, what we have here in the book of Ephesians is Paul's uh, second prayer for these Ephesian believers. The first prayer, if you'll remember, was recorded for us, and we studied that in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And in that first prayer, Paul was focused on the believers being enlightened, having the eyes of their heart opened to understand. Paul is praying for spiritual awareness. He prays that they would grow in their knowledge of God and their awareness of all that they have in Christ. That's what he's been praying for them. And in this second prayer, again verses 14 through 21, the emphasis is now not on enlightenment, but on enablement. The point now is on being versus knowing. In other words, laying hold of what God has for us by faith and making it a vital part of our lives. That's what he's praying for these believers. It's essential that we recognize that both of these prayers by Paul deal with the spiritual condition of the believer and not material needs. Praying for material and physical needs is certainly okay, right? It's it's acceptable. God allows us to pray for material and physical needs. It's okay to do that. But the greater need of any believer is his spiritual need. If the spiritual aspect of the believer is what it ought to be, then the physical need will be taken care of in due time, one way or the other. Uh, This is something that we need to take to heart today. Too many of our prayers focus on physical and material needs, and we fail to pray for the deeper spiritual need of our lives. We're all guilty of that. The truth is that God cares much more about His people becoming mature followers than He does about their physical and material needs of their life. He cares about the physical and material needs, but God cares far more about your spiritual life than He does the physical and the material. We could learn to pray for not only daily needs, but also for God's spiritual plan in our lives. Listen to me. We would be more likely to see God move in the church and use us for His glory. It would do us good to use these prayers of Paul as our own. These are not prayers that are just here to fill up the pages of the Bible. They're inspired by the Spirit of God. Paul is praying these for believers, and you and I are to walk away from this. We're to hear this today and walk away from this going, that is a prayer I can pray. They should be our own. We should ask God to help us in our spiritual growth. And there's a couple of things here that are very uh, prominent. We're, we're being taught how to pray for ourselves and how to pray for one another. Just a quick survey. How many of you would love to know that there are people praying this prayer for you? you? You'd love that, right? We're being shown an indicator also of our own desires or a lack of desire in a specific area here. So if you're looking at your handout here, The main idea is praying for ultimate maturity in the Christian faith. Praying for ultimate maturity in the Christian faith. Again, uh, this is just not something we hear facts and we hear uh, the Word of God taught today. We are to apply and obey what we see here. This is a perfect model of you to apply to your prayer life. How many of you ever get in a rut in your prayer life? It didn't take very long for that to happen and continue. These are things that we can have in our prayer lives that we pray for ourselves as well as for one another. So if you're looking there, verses 14 through 15, Paul kind of gives us, if you will, the attitude for prayer. 
He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. The words, for this reason, if you're paying attention, they take us back to verse 1 of chapter 3. And you see those same words there. If you remember, I told you that Paul begins to pray in verse 1, and he gets sidetracked. He wants to go back and talk about the gospel more, and now he's... Well, being sidetracked on the gospel is a good sidetrack, by the way. I'm not saying in a negative standpoint. I wish I got sidetracked on that more often than I do other things. But Paul was sidetracked there, and now he's coming back here in verse 14. He's going to begin this prayer. And for this reason, again, going back to verse 1, takes us back to chapters 1 and 2. For this reason, he's looking back especially to chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And Paul says, there's a reason I'm praying. For this reason, it's because God saved you by His sovereign grace and brought all of you, and by all of you, he's talking about Jew and Gentile, all peoples of the world, into one new man. And that is the church. He saved you, He's redeemed you, and He's brought us all into what we know as the church. And because you're being built together as a dwelling place of God and the Spirit, it's for this reason I'm praying. What he prays is that God would make real in our lives what is true of us positionally in Christ. That's what he's praying for. Make real in their lives, God, what is true of them positionally in Christ. Here's where they are positionally. I'm praying for them that you would make that real in their lives. Notice the posture of Paul when he, when he prays to God. He said, I bow my knees before the Father. We read that and we're kind of like, okay, Paul got on his knees to pray. No big deal. Um, The normal position for Jews was standing when they prayed. Now, that wasn't disrespectful or uh, they weren't being irreverent toward God, but their normal habit was standing, not kneeling. And I think I mentioned this Wednesday night. How many of you ever watched on TV or seen a book, The Place in the City of Jerusalem called The Wailing Wall? That's where they go to pray daily, and they're standing, they pray. They actually write their prayers on little pieces of paper, and they stick them in the cracks of that wall. I've been there, and you walk to that wall, and there's all kinds of little pieces of paper sticking in that wall. I don't know who comes and cleans them out, if they ever do, but man, there's tons of pieces of paper stuck in there. They write their prayers down, and they stand there, and they pray. And you've seen the the, the Jewish guys who have the little locks of hair that come down long, and they're kind of curly like a pig's tail hanging down. They're standing there, and they're at that wall, and they're wailing. They're Rocking back and forth. They're standing. So Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, I don't want to suggest that kneeling when praying is the correct, absolute position. But in the Bible, kneeling when praying is an indication of deep humility and deep emotion before God. Paul says, I'm bowing on my knees. It indicates the attitude of his heart. Kneeling revealed reverence. It revealed, listen, desperation. How many of you have been desperate in your prayers? Got on your knees before? Standing just didn't seem to get it done, right? Not that God would answer your prayer standing versus kneeling, but you ever been in that point of desperation where you got on your knees and you bow before the Father? You're in desperation. It's a sign of submission, humility, gratitude. And, and even more important, it's a sign of worship. And notice what he says there. I bow before. That word before means toward or or face to face with. 
along with the word father, he says, I bow before the father. It implies the intimacy, like a child who comes before his father who will welcome him and receive him in love. You daddies, you fathers, you can relate to this. That little child comes to you and, you know, they, they ask for something. And you and your love, if it's permissible, you're more than willing to grant that. There's an intimate thing that goes on there between and moms I don't want to leave you out that happens with you as well but the idea here is it's of intimacy of face to face with God coming before God reflecting on God's grace that's what Paul's doing calls Paul listen to me it caused him to get on his face before God that's what he's been reflecting on right he's been thinking about the gospel the people have been reconciled we've been brought into this one new man uh, been brought into the church God has redeemed us by the blood of Christ he's reflecting on that and it caused Paul to do what God's grace caused him to get on his face before God that's a message for us What Paul is doing here is worshiping. He's worshiping God for the saving grace that He shows to sinners. Now let me ask you this. When was the last time that you bowed in humble gratitude to God? When was the last time? And again, don't take this too far. I'm not saying if you don't get on your knees to pray, God does not hear you. You're not humble and grateful. But when was the last time you really became humble before God and grateful for His grace? And really reflected upon the salvation He's brought to you in Christ. And you humbled yourself. And you bowed before Him. And you just poured your heart out to Him for saving you. Psalm chapter 95, verse 6-7 says, Oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Kneeling is also a sign, as I said, of desperation. When we understand that we're, we're coming before the only one who can act on our behalf, it should give us a true sense of helplessness. You ever been there? Helpless? And you just cried out to God in desperation? Here's a question for you as a way of application. What keeps you from humble desperation in your prayer? What keeps you from doing that? you're like me a lot of times, you think because God has always been good, everything's just always going to be there, right? You wake up every morning and you think everything's going to be today just like it was yesterday, right? We assume. When was the last time in humble desperation before God, you just got on your knees, you bowed before the Father, and you poured out your heart to Him, your gratefulness over the Gospel? When was the last time you were desperate before God? When was the last time you were desperate before God for your lost family members or your lost loved ones or your neighbors or your co-workers? When was the last time you were desperate because you knew that there were people who were going to die and go to hell if they didn't know Jesus? When was the last time you bowed in desperation saying, God, you've got to help me to share the gospel with these people? I'm afraid. It's okay to admit that. Because by the way, God knows you're afraid. You're not hiding anything from Him. Pour your heart out desperate. God, these people need the gospel. I, I need to be able to do this. Do you realize that you're helpless and powerless without God? It's kind of a side note there. But Paul is bowing before God and humble, just, just prostrating himself before God and, and gratefulness for the gospel. He's, he's been thinking and meditating on the gospel and it has just overcome him. And he bows on his knees before the Father. Notice verse 15. 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What this refers to is believers of every age, those who are now in heaven and those who are still on the earth. The idea with this expression is to emphasize to all believers that there's no longer Jew or Gentile. Those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ, regardless of ethnicity, where they're born, people in Siberia, people in Ethiopia, all are in the family of God. They all belong to God's new family. They belong to the church today. Paul's point would be that because God has made this family, that He has put His name upon it, then it is His family. So we we trust Him as our Father. We come to Him as our Father to supply our every need. And by the way, we come to God for the sake of others, right? We can pray these prayers for others in the church, and we'll talk about that here in a few minutes. So a way of applying that is that prayer should be made in light of our new standing as children in God's forever family. You know, and as a result, when we pray, we should recognize that we belong to this great family. Some of you sitting here today belong to large families, right? Big families. And that's great, and that's good, and that's something we should rejoice in and be grateful for and thank God for. But do you realize, sitting on the pew here today, that you have a brother or a sister somewhere across the ocean that you've never laid your eyes on? One day in heaven, man, there's going to be a multitude of those people. And we're all in the same family. And as a member of the family of God, even those of you who are not yet mature believers, you can come before God with confidence the way the Apostle Paul did. Paul is in desperation and humility and gratitude and, and humbleness and brokenness over the Gospel, bows before the Father. Maybe that's something that we need to put into practice. I don't, and again, I don't think it's something you can work up. Don't misunderstand me. I think the more you reflect on the Gospel, the more you think about the Gospel, the more you meditate on the Gospel, which is something we don't do very much anymore is meditate, right? Think on the Gospel. God in His grace will put you in that position of gratitude and humbleness before Him. Verses 16 through 19. We saw the attitude of prayer. Now we see what to pray for. He gets specific here. What to pray for members of the family. Verse 16 that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant to you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Paul prays that God may what? Grant believers these blessings. We're going to go through these blessings. The word word grant means to give freely. God, give it freely to them. He's asking God to grant. Recognizes that we should never ask God for anything based on our own merit. Grant means to give freely when you don't deserve it. God, give them these blessings. Paul asked God to grant, to give believers these blessings. Notice there, according to the riches of His glory. The idea here is that God has limitless resources. God can give it to you, and that's not the end of it. There's always more to be given. The Christian life is a process, right? It's a process of sanctification. And you can have those days when you are really focused on the gospel and God pours into your life and you're, you're reflecting on that and you're thinking, man, this is great. And then there's another day somewhere down the road where that, that blessing comes again and God really 
blesses your heart spiritually. Paul's asking, God grant them these things according to the riches of your glory. In other words, Paul wants it fixed in the mind of the believer that God's answer to these prayers are not a question of his ability or his desire to do so. Paul is saying, God, give these things to your people. God is able to do far above and beyond all that we can ask or think. Paul does not ask God to give out give riches. Notice this. He doesn't ask God to give out of his riches of glory. But a what? According to. And I think somewhere in a sermon here recently I've mentioned this. If a billionaire gives you a hundred dollars, he gave you what? Out of his riches. If he gives you ten million dollars, he gave you what? According to. His riches. The point is God is not lacking in resources. God has them in abundance. And here's the question. Do we ask for them? Do we ask God for these things that Paul is about to bring up here? That's the question we need to ask. And we're going to start looking at these. Do we ask for these things? Notice verse 16 through 17, the first part of verse 17. He prays to be strengthened with power through the Spirit. God doesn't save the sinner and then He says, hey, you're on your own. Do the best you can. I've saved you from my wrath. I put you in the church. Now you do the best you can. Paul prays that believers will have power for living the Christian life. This is absolutely essential for us to understand. There is never a moment in our Christian life when we're not dependent upon God's Spirit in our life to grow us and mature us in our life. Every born-again believer at the moment of salvation is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. At the moment of salvation, when someone repents of their sin and they trust in Christ, at that very moment, the Spirit of God comes to dwell within them. It doesn't happen later on. You don't get saved now and then the Spirit comes later on. There's multiple fillings of the Spirit. Paul says be filled with the Spirit, right? So that tells us it's in the present tense and there's a continuous being filled with the Spirit as we live the Christian life. But there's never a point when the Spirit of God is not residing within a believer. And Paul prays for that Holy Spirit within us to strengthen us to live the Christian life. Power doesn't come from us, but it comes from who? The Holy Spirit. A lot of us sitting here, including myself sometimes, we kind of get, we kind of get weirded out when we're starting talking about the Holy Spirit, right? We kind of like, oh, I, I, don't, don't go there. That kind of, I kind of get weirded out by the Spirit thing. It's because we've, we've seen uh, misrepresentations of that. Power doesn't come from us. It comes from the Spirit. So we must constantly be dependent upon God in prayer, asking for His Spirit to work in us. Notice where we need that power for strength. Notice where it's, where it's at. It's in your inner being. That's where you need strength and power. You need it on the the inside. The phrase, the inner man, refers to the heart that we see in verse 17. Paul is praying for strength through the Spirit in the inner man. Strengthening is the work of the Spirit. This is what we call, as I said earlier, the work of sanctification. The work by which the Holy Spirit applies God's power to our hearts and our minds and our thoughts, our wills and our affection, and He changes us. The inner man. You remember what I said earlier? We, we are good at praying for what? The outer man. But how many of us pray for the inner man? 
Let me ask you this as a way of application. Are you more concerned with the outer man than you are the inner man? I think if we were perfectly honest, we'd have to say probably so. We're more concerned with the outer man than we are the inner man. There's nothing wrong with caring for the outer man, right? Don't misunderstand me. We need to take care of ourselves, right? Because we're image bearers of God. We need to take care of ourselves, and yet we're far more interested in the outer man than we are the inner man. But here's the truth of the matter. The outer man's falling apart, right? Amen? Every day, my outer man gets weaker and weaker. Every day I feel more and more aches and pains in my body as I grow older. And some of you are going, you don't know nothing yet. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying. What do you think of when you think of decay? It's not a pretty picture, right? Don't lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Your bodies are wearing out, right? Amen? They're wearing out. And that should be a good reminder that your days on earth are limited and you need to focus on what? The inner man. Nothing wrong with taking care of the outside, but don't be consumed with it because what's going to happen one day? The inner man is more important than the outer man. The, the battle you fight against temptation and sin is a battle that's won or lost in the heart. Not only outside. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, excuse me, 21 and 22, that the outward sins that we see in our life, they come from where? The heart. What comes out, what is produced in our life comes from our heart. It comes from our inner man. You might be able to change your outward behavior for a while uh, through a lot of different methods. You may listen to Joel or Joyce or Dr. Phil. But if God doesn't change your heart, you're just learning to be a better hypocrite. That's all you're doing. Genuine Christianity, listen to me, genuine Christianity is not a moral improvement program. That's not what it means to be a Christian. It's not a moral improvement program. God is in the business of changing hearts, our motives, our attitudes, and our desires. And for that kind of interchange, we need nothing less than the power of the Spirit of God. Only He can make our heart the kind of place where Jesus is pleased to dwell. Look at verse 17. The aim of the Spirit strengthening you with power in the inner man is what? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why do you need to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in your inner being? It's so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. This word dwell here is extremely important. The idea of dwelling here is more than just Jesus dwelling in your heart. Instead, it's the idea of Jesus, listen to me, ruling your heart. Is there a difference? It's not just Jesus being in your heart, but it's Jesus ruling your heart. The word dwell means to settle down, to have a permanent residence, not to be short-lived. Why does Paul pray that Jesus may dwell or settle down in our hearts through faith? Why does he do that? Keep in mind, Paul is writing to believers. He's talking about something more than Jesus coming into our lives at the point of salvation. He's talking about Jesus being at home in our hearts. He's talking about having close, intimate, 
ongoing, growing fellowship with Jesus. That's what he's talking about. One commentator I read this week, uh, D.A. Carson says, when a person takes up long-term residence somewhere, their presence eventually characterizes that dwelling. Is that not true? You go to someone's home and they've lived there a long time, you can look around their home and you can learn a lot about them, right? The home begins to take on the character of that person. When Jesus first moves into our lives, He finds us in bad repair. It takes a great deal of power to change us. And that's what Paul prays for here. Notice secondly in verses, the latter part of verse 17 through verse 19, we need power to better understand Jesus' love for us. Most of us, if I said, if you're a Christian, if I were talking to you and I said, do you know Jesus loves you? And you'd say, well, sure, I know that. Yeah, I know Jesus loves me because we sing that song, right? Some of you are singing right now, right? Jesus loves me. This I know. By the way, when I, when I, go, I go to the nursing home, uh, Franklin Oaks, the third Wednesday every month, and we sing several songs. You know what the first song is we sing with those folks? Jesus loves me. This I know. And you're thinking, that's a child's song. You'll see the faces of some of those people in there when they sing that song, especially those who know Jesus. And they know what it means to know the love of Christ. Notice in verse 17 there, he says that you being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded. This is a prayer for believers to be secure. Listen, it's a prayer to be secure in Jesus' love for them. It's not our love for Jesus. Don't misunderstand that. It's not our love for Jesus, but it's a prayer that the believer will know Jesus' love for them. He says, rooted in love. It pictures a sturdy tree with its roots sinking down. And you know the difference between a tree that has roots deep in the ground and one that doesn't, right? When the storms come and when drought comes, which ones survive? The ones that those roots are deep in the ground. Rooted in the love of Jesus. But notice what he says next, grounded. This is a very interesting word. It has the idea... Now, don't misunderstand me. They didn't know what a skyscraper was in this point in time in history. But when you bring that word into our time, it has the idea of a skyscraper with a foundation that goes deep into the ground. So I thought, well, okay. So I I did a little research. Kind of intrigued about... If this has the idea of a skyscraper with a foundation that goes deep... I need, I need a perspective on that. So I began to research online and I found one particular skyscraper that was built somewhere over in the Middle East. And engineers drove, listen, 908 steel rods, 908. They drove them 200 feet deep into the earth. And then they poured a 20 foot thick concrete pad around that. Now is that a foundation or what? You want to be in that building when the storm comes, right? You're not going to worry too much. That's the idea here. Grounded. Deep, deep, deep in the love of Jesus. Paul prays for believers for power to better understand God's love so they'll be secure in God's love. Rooted and grounded in that love. Notice there. May have strength to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. He prays for security. Now he prays for us to understand that God's love is limitless. God is not limited on His love. 
A lot of times we like to love conditionally, right? What do I mean? Well, you love me and I'll love you. You do this and I'll do that. Man, aren't you glad that God doesn't love us that way? What if God loved us in response to our love for Him? That would be that would be bad for us. May have strength to comprehend. That word comprehend means to lay hold of or to seize. Paul's praying that believers may have the power to lay hold of Jesus' love for them. Which, oddly enough, is beyond our understanding. It's beyond our understanding. Paul's praying that they would lay hold of this... But by the way, it's beyond your understanding of just how much God loves you. He says that they would be able, notice there, they'd be able to comprehend the immense love of Jesus. We must have God's power to do that. Paul's praying that we who already know Jesus, His great love might come to experience it at an even greater level. Some of us are going, I know God's love. But God's love, an understanding of it, is immeasurable, which means that we can live our Christian life every day, continuously growing in a better understanding of just how much God loves us. Look at verse 18 again. Notice how we should try to comprehend. Don't miss this. That they may have strength to comprehend, and what does it say next? With all the saints. All believers should think of the love of Jesus together. This is another reference to the importance of the church. God intends to shape us through community as we point one another to the gospel. The Christian life was never intended to be lived in isolation. You've heard this, right? There's no such thing as a long ranger Christian. John Stott says we need the whole people of God to better understand the whole love of God. Just let me give you an example. You've been around some people as Christians, right? And you thought, man, that, that joker's hard to love, right? But God loved him, right? You see how someone can be hard to love, can grow you and make you appreciate the love of God for them even more? That God would even say to them, and by the way, He saved you and you're just as bad as that person you think is bad? Verses 18 and 19. He says that we may be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which what? Surpasses knowledge. What we have here is is referred to as, they call it an intentional paradox. We can know something of Jesus' great love, but in another sense we can never know it completely because it's what? It surpasses our understanding. Notice he says the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. You read those words and you're kind of like, okay, what's he talking about here? We'll try to maybe get close to what Paul might be saying. The breadth of Christ's love includes a great multitude that is beyond number, consisting of people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. God's not, love is not limited to the white Americans who live in North America. The breadth of God's love goes to every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. The length of God's love extends from eternity to eternity. Back in chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, 
He says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. It's an eternal love that will not let us go. The height of His love lifts us up, it says in chapter 2, verse 6, to an exalted position of being seated with Him in heavenly places. The depth of His love is that He cast our sin into the bottom of the sea. Micah chapter 7, verse 9. God cast our sin into the bottom of the sea. Verse 19. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. We can't get to the bottom of Jesus' love. Throughout eternity, we'll never come to the place of saying that we know all there is to know of Jesus' great love for us. And some of you are going, what's the point? The point is, as you pursue that, it becomes more and more evident in your life. You'll never get to the end, but it grows your life. It grows your faith. It's kind of like eating banana pudding, right? You sit down and you've, for some reason, you've got the bowl and you eat. You're thinking, man, this is good. The more I eat, the better it gets, right? But guess what? You're going to finish that, but it's not that way with God's love. The more you pursue it, the more of it there is. Verse 19, Paul finishes his prayer with, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The idea of filled with fullness means total dominance or control, so that God perfectly controls our minds, our emotions, and our will. Now let me ask you, I had to ask myself this week, sitting at my desk, looking through this, do, do, do you pray this way? Do you pray this way for yourself? Do you pray this kind of request for other Christians? Do you pray these prayers, parents, for your children? Let me say this to you. This is more important than who they will marry, where they will go to school, or what career they choose. Do you pray these type prayers for your children? Do you pray these type prayers for members of Redbud Baptist Church? I've told you this before. I pray through the church role. Some this day, some this day, and some this day. I pray these things for each and every one of you. Does that give you comfort to know that somebody's praying these things for you? Man, it does me. Notice in verse 20 through 21, there was the attitude of prayer and what we're to pray for. Now we see to pray with expectations. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power, look at this, at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice what He says. He's been praying these things, right? These spiritual blessings upon our lives. And what does He say? Pray with expectation. Why? Now to Him who is able, God is able. God is able. What is Paul telling us? What I just prayed for, God is able to give that to you. Able to do what? What is God able to do? I want you to look at these verses and listen to me. Able to do what? God is able to do far more. God is able to do far more abundantly. God is able to do far more abundantly than we than all that we ask. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or 
think. If you can ask it or think it, God is able to give you even more than that. God can do more through prayer than we can do in a hundred years of planning. How does God do this? I like this. According to the power at work within us. you got a question right now, right? What is that power? The power at work within us. What is it? Verse 16 tells us that we are strengthened with power through what? The Spirit in our own being. That's the Holy Spirit of God. It's within us. There is power within you to put you in the position to have these blessings. God is able to do that through the Spirit who lives in you. But don't miss this. Look back to chapter 1, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us? Who what? Believe. If you don't believe, you don't have this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right at His right hand in heavenly places? What is the power that's in work within you? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Does that not intrigue you? That within you is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now here's my question. Do you want that power to be worked out in your life? Do you? Then pray like Paul does here. Because he told us that God is able to do it, right? This should be the main goal of our prayers, that we grow in our faith, that we grow in our Christian faith. Look at verse 21. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We should pray for God to bless us with power for growth in the Christian faith. For what reason? For His glory. We don't want it to consume it upon ourselves, but we want it for the glory of God. Notice, to Him be glory where? In the church. The church is not the building, but who? The people. The people who make up the church. They are to glorify God. How is that done? As the church, as the people of God, as they grow in their obedience to God and His Word, as they grow in pleasing God, and as they grow in making God the center of their experience, they glorify God. The more you pray... The more you pursue these things, God is going to give them to you, and in return, it's going to do what? It's going to give glory to God. Notice also, to Him be glory in Christ Jesus. When we, the church, when we lift up Jesus, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, we glorify God. And I was reading this verse and I was going, To Him be glory in the church and to Him be glory in Redbud Baptist Church. That's what I was praying this week. God, that's what I want for us. That's what I want for us as a people of God that God has placed in this corner of Franklin County that we would be a church to the glory of God. But we can't be that church if we're not pursuing these things that Paul's praying for us. And here's his application. Has God become so central to all your thoughts and pursuits that you're praying that you cannot simply imagine asking for anything without consciously longing that the answer would bring glory to God?
Ask yourselves personally, and all of us as a church, what are the reasons behind your prayers? What steps can you take? And can we take as a church to make the glory of God the main concern of our lives and our church? Can I tell you something? God will bless the church that seeks to bring Him glory. That's a no-brainer, right? That's what God wants. And God will bless the church that pursues His glory. Now let me ask you this. When was the last time or have you ever prayed along these lines in verses 14 through 21? Have you ever done that? Now I'm not asking that to beat you over the head. It's, It's a way to challenge you to do that. Have you ever done that? And God's not, well, God's not upset or angry at you that you haven't done it. He's just waiting for you to do it so He can give it to you. Have you ever prayed this way? Have you ever prayed this way? What is today? New Year's Day. What do we normally do on this day? New Year's resolutions. I'm not a big fan of resolutions. I don't think they're bad. But my challenge to you would be, would you make it your goal to do this? This could be a good New Year's resolution. Let me challenge you to do this. Incorporate these petitions into your daily praying for the next six months. And let's trust God and see what He'll do in our lives spiritually. As believers, but more importantly, what? As a church. Let's pray.